0: August 14, 2015. The American flag is raised over the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba, reopened after more than half a century in a ceremony led by then-Secretary of State John Kerry. This morning I feel very much at home here. And I feel at home here because this is truly a memorable occasion. It was indeed a historic moment. For decades, Cuba and the United States had been locked in a seemingly endless Cold War grudge match. Determined to stamp out a communist beachfront 90 miles from the Florida coast, the CIA had plotted to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro with exploding cigars and poisoned pellets. In 1961, it tried to topple Castro's government with a disastrous invasion by Cuban exiles at the Bay of Pigs. And the year after that, the Soviet Union installed nuclear missiles on Cuban soil, aimed at the United States, bringing the world to the brink of atomic apocalypse. Relations between the two countries were frozen in amber no functioning embassies, no high level summits, no economic aid or tourism, only an unrelenting U.S. embargo of the island. But now, as Kerry proclaimed that day, speaking in Spanish que el claramente... and English, after all, we are neighbors. And neighbors will all... A new era was said to have begun. President Barack Obama underscored the point seven months later when he too visited Cuba, the first president to do so since Calvin Coolidge, meeting with Raul Castro, attending a Cuban baseball game, and addressing the Cuban people in a nationwide TV address, as well as his own pep talk to the newly reopened embassy staff.
1: Everything we've accomplished so far, uh, more Americans coming to Cuba, more engagement with the Cuban people, civil society, faith groups, entrepreneurs, students, young people, every single day you're bringing the Cuban people and the American people closer together. And what I remember most is just the extraordinary sense of hope and enthusiasm among the Cuban people. They couldn't help but be excited that Obama was there.
0: Ben Rhodes was Obama's deputy national security advisor and, as the architect of the reopening to Cuba, accompanied the president on the trip.
1: And to see things that you never thought you'd see, you know, the American and Cuban flags together, you know, the American and Cuban national anthems playing together. If you've been there, that looks like it's just been hermetically sealed in time coming to life. You know, I saw that and it was the most satisfying moment I had in government.
0: But even as U.S. officials in 2016 were still celebrating this new era and cruise ships and American tourists started arriving on the island, there were the first reports of a very weird phenomenon that would upend everything that Barack Obama, John Kerry, and Ben Rhodes had hoped to accomplish.
2: Well, I'm Karen Coates. And uh, I worked at the U.S. Embassy in Havana.
0: In the fall of 2016, Karen Coates arrived in Cuba. A former elementary school teacher in Florida, Coates was a State Department employee assigned to work human resources at the embassy, serving alongside her husband, who was sent there as a consular officer. One day, a few months after she arrived, she was walking down a hallway, heading to the bathroom, when, she says, she was thrown for a loop. There
2: was a really, really, really high, high-pitched noise. It was like a teapot on steroids. And it literally, it was so incapacitating that I ducked down with my head, my hands over my ears, and I was trying to leave the area. I finally, I walked around the corner, and that's when I was hit. I mean, it's so, it's so piercing, you immediately grab your ears, you grab your head, you, it's like I ducked down, it was so piercing.
0: Mm. How long did that last?
2: Just for the second that I was in the hallway, and as soon as I went around the corner of the hallway, it immediately stopped. I didn't hear it.
0: Later that night?
2: I immediately left and um, became that evening and that day... Very discombobulated, started having headaches, I couldn't walk my my vestibular was off my balance, and then um I was hit again and uh, for a second time, and this time it was um, very let me think of the word it, uh, it I can't think of the word
0: that's okay
2: yeah. Sorry, I, I, I can't, whenever I'm having to think, I, I can't anymore. You saw I was a highly functioning individual. Now I, I really have a hard time trying to talk and think.
0: Coates was baffled.
2: So I did not know what was happening. I just knew that something strange had just happened. And um, whenever I got hit the second time, It was the proverbial cicada sound. It really was. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how hokey is this? You know, I'm really hearing like these cicadas.
0: You heard that right. What Coates and a number of other U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers reported hearing, and a few resourceful ones claimed they had actually taped, was a sound that seemed suspiciously similar to the high-pitched cry of the Cuban cicada, or as later analysis suggested, the mating call of a West Indies cricket.
2: The first time it was not. It was just such a loud, high-piercing noise. But the second time I was hit with the cicadas, all of a sudden I had this massive pressure in my face where it felt like my face was
0: literally going to blow out. Did it feel like that the pressure was from the outside in or from the inside out? It was from the inside
2: out. And truly, it felt like my front of my face and my head were going to just blow, explode, is what it felt like. It was such intense pressure at the moment, but it was very quick.
0: Were you scared?
2: The scariness of it is, I don't even know how to say this. It's really not even scary. It's like, what was that? What just happened to me? Is this something I need to report? You know, is this part of what's happening in Havana? I couldn't understand why anybody would want to do this with me. I'm an HR assistant, you know.
0: After Coates and a handful of other diplomats and intelligence officers in Havana reported these strange sounds and the debilitating reactions that followed, it set off a chain of events that may be unprecedented in the history of American diplomacy. U.S. Embassy officials started urging all embassy staffers to come forward if anything similar happened to them. Soon enough, more reports came in, about two dozen from Cuba all told, and then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson ordered an immediate withdrawal of most of the U.S. Embassy staff, asserting for the first time publicly that these experiences were caused by some sort of deliberate hostile action that nobody could quite explain.
2: We are convinced these were targeted attacks We don't like our diplomats being targeted.
0: The consular office, which processes visas to the U.S., was shuttered entirely.
2: An immigration office in Havana is shutting down permanently,
0: following staff cuts at the U.S. embassy there. Visa services here in Havana have been almost entirely suspended since November of last year because of a drawdown in staffing here, the result of health issues affecting American embassy workers. And President Trump himself weighed in blaming the Cubans for what was happening to America's diplomats. They did some bad things in Cuba. Very bad things. Well, you're going to see what's happening in Cuba, but some bad. they did some bad things. The media adopted a name for this weird phenomenon, Havana Syndrome, a moniker first used by a Belgian blogger. But what it was and who or what was causing it was a mystery. Trump had already signaled his plans to reverse Obama's opening, but the reports of Havana Syndrome poured new fuel on a combustible fire and riled up members of Congress, none more so than two powerful Cuban Americans in the U.S. Senate, Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida and Democrat Bob Menendez of New Jersey, both of whom grilled State Department officials at a 2018 hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Here's Rubio.
3: Obviously, this is a pretty sophisticated
1: thing. Okay. This was not something conducted by, you know, a fly-by-night operation. My final question is for you, Mr. Brown, and you, Dr. Rosenfarb. Based on what we know, and more importantly, what we don't know, can you today guarantee the safety of any personnel in Havana currently stationed there or about to be deployed to Havana, Senator? I don't think we can say categorically that that we can guarantee uh, that they would be
3: safe from this.
0: And Menendez.
3: Now. Mr. Palmieri, would it not be fair to say that in Cuba, either it is the regime who conducted these attacks, or they have full knowledge of who conducted these attacks? Very difficult to believe that if a third country ultimately engaged in these attacks within Cuba, that the Cuban intelligence would not know. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir.
0: My name is Michael Lisakoff and I'm the host of Conspiracy Land. In the first two seasons of this podcast, we tracked how baseless conspiracy theories got wide traction on social media, one involving the death of a Democratic National Committee staffer, the other claims by Donald Trump that a media critic had been implicated in a murder. In the third season, we explored a real-life conspiracy, a plot by Saudi officials to assassinate their country's most prominent journalist and the efforts by the Trump White House to cover it up. But this season is a bit different. We'll be dealing here with what are effectively two dueling conspiracy theories, each of them with varying degrees of plausibility, depending on who you ask, but with scant hard evidence to back either of them up. One is what Tillerson, Trump, Rubio, and Menendez all alleged in those clips you just heard, that what happened to U.S. embassy employees in Havana, like Karen Coates, was the result of a directed energy attack from a super-secret weapon deployed by a hostile foreign power which U.S. intelligence officials theorized was most likely the Cubans' close ally, the Russian government of Vladimir Putin. The other is that nothing happened at all, that the accounts of Karen Coates and other U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers are the result of excessive stress, pre-existing conditions, and the power of suggestion, what the scientists call a psychogenic illness or disorder. In plain English, argues Robert Bartholomew, a lecturer on psychological medicine at the University of Auckland, it's a case of mass hysteria, not unlike the accounts of widespread sorcery during the Salem witch trials in the 17th century, or the plague of fainting among wealthy women in Austria during the late 19th or early 20th centuries, attracting the attention of Sigmund Freud.
1: I mean, in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692, if somebody came to your house and you had a headache and maybe your cat died, You could accuse somebody of witchcraft, right? It's because of the mindset and the environment and the backdrop. Well, you got something similar going on with Havana syndrome. Now you've got people suffering a mass psychogenic illness, but you've also got a lot of people who don't have mass psychogenic illness, who've been told to be on the alert for anomalous health incidents. And then they wake up in the morning, have a headache, a bit nauseous, and they hear some sound in the background and they assume that they've been attacked by some sonic or microwave weapon and that they have havana syndrome
0: as you'll hear there are arguments for and against each of these theories with to put it mildly no clear consensus among the scientific community only a flurry of government reports that contradict each other but we can be definitive about one point to start off the phrase havana syndrome is faulty labeling The reports of strange sounds and crippling after effects to the body and brain may have started in Havana, but they quickly spread to diplomats and intelligence officers serving all over the world, in China, in Russia, in Austria, in Colombia, and Vietnam, more than 1,100 overall, and in a couple of occasions, even among officials working in the White House. But it was only from Cuba that the U.S. government withdrew its diplomats, and alone among the governments in the world, it was only the Cuban government that U.S. officials and members of Congress sought to hold responsible, even though, by the most generous accounting, the reports of U.S. officials afflicted with Havana syndrome, who served in Cuba, is barely 2% of the total. The combination of the Havana syndrome shutdowns and the reimposition of U.S. sanctions has had a devastating impact on the Cuban economy leading to shortages of medicine, milk and food, historic protests, and a surge of Cubans showing up at the southwest border. It's a harsh new policy that began under Donald Trump, and yet oddly, with little fanfare and no blowback, it has for the most part been continued and, until very recently, even tightened under President Joe Biden. Whatever the ultimate verdict is on Havana Syndrome, and you'll hear more about what we've discovered in a later episode, one thing seems clear. The real, if still mysterious, health ailments experienced by American diplomats and spies was turned into a political trigger and, as you'll hear now, helped hurl U.S.-Cuba relations back in time to the dark days of the Cold War. Episode 1, A Broken Heart My producer, Mark Seaman, and I arrived in Havana the day after the country's annual May Day celebration, an opportunity for the regime to reaffirm its socialist roots and revolutionary art. And we met first with a Cuban government official whose entire career reflects her commitment to those revolutionary principles.
4: Well, my name is Johanna Rutablada de la Torre. You know, Latin names are long. (laughs) (laughs) I am deputy general director for U.S. at the Foreign Affairs Ministry in Cuba.
0: Tablada has been the point person for Cuban dealings with the United States, as limited as they've been for nearly three decades. And when I asked her about the health problems of U.S. diplomats who served in Cuba, she offered up a conspiracy theory of her own. What is the Cuban government's view of what happened?
4: Our view is that there was a combination, probably, of things. First, normal disease were prematurely treated normal. as disease normal in, n- normal health episodes mm-hmm. were prematurely out of political motivations treated as something else that's that's our hypothesis there was uh, remember that if a month trump became the new president of the united states with a very serious commitment of reverse whatever Obama and President Raul Castro improved, in, and it was a lot, in terms of relation. The, you have to think in what was the, um, the ambiance, the environment in the two countries. We were receiving more than 100 planes per week in Havana from different cities of U.S cruise ship visitors, more than 300 universities had uh, agreements with Havana universities. There were 1.3 million people coming from U.S. to Cuba annually, together, Cuban-Americans and Americans.
0: But to put a stop to all that, Teplata argued, the Trump administration essentially cooked up the whole Havana syndrome controversy in order to have what she called a dramatic event to justify what it wanted to do from the outset. Put the squeeze on Cuba.
4: In my opinion, and I've been working with the U.S. for 30 years, some people create a pretext that would give them the excuse to reverse as they did. So you think this is all politics? Okay, this is a very tricky question. First, Cuba has never doubted that some people feel bad in Cuba. So you cannot question the integrity of a person that said, I have a headache or I don't feel good. Even in Congress, just seven members of Congress, one of them was Pompeo, the other one Marco Rubio, the other one Bob Menendez. So the same people that had been pushing, pushing for this uh, story so heavily were the ones that opposed the reestablishing of, of U.S. and Cuba relation. And the other question here is what Cuba has to gain if we were happy to have for the very first time in history a walk, a road that was toward a civilized relationship.
0: What's been the impact of all this on the Cuban people?
4: People die. Cuba passed from being a country with 4% of infant mortality rate to 7.1 in 2021. I lost my mother-in-law of cancer in June 21. We had no morphine.
0: And as Tablada sees it, there's one simple explanation for this. The large number of vehemently anti-communist Cuban-Americans in Florida.
4: Unfortunately, Cuba is not a foreign policy issue for U.S. It's a domestic policy issue. So elections in Florida are more important for every president of U.S. Their policy towards Latin America.
0: To be sure, there was nothing especially surprising or even controversial about Tablada's take about the impact the Cuban-American vote in Florida has had on U.S. policy over the years. But it was a bit surprising to hear what she had to say about the Biden administration. When Barack Obama first announced his opening to Cuba in 2014, he did so on the White House lawn with his vice president, Joe Biden, standing right next to him. And as a candidate in 2020, Biden pledged to put an end to what he called Trump's failed policy toward Cuba. But as Tablada tells it, Biden as president has only strengthened Trump's retrenchment and made things worse.
4: First measure of Biden in government, the brand new Biden in government, they registered Cuba as a terrorist state. Second decision on April, they put Cuba in the human trafficking report and they threat all countries who has, specifically, they went after every single country that had a perfectly legal cooperation agreement to save life. On May, they put Cuba on the list of countries that did not cooperate with U.S. in fighting terrorism. May. May of of 2021.
0: Tablada's timeline is a bit garbled here. It was actually the Trump administration that, in its last weeks in office in January 2021, put Cuba back on the State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism. And while Biden's State Department recently lightened up a few of its crackdowns against Cuba, it has maintained new sanctions and quietly kept the country on the terrorist list with profound consequences for the Cuban economy.
4: So the whole philosophy of Biden and Trump, there's no distinction now. Cubans, we people walking in the street, talk to anybody just get a, a cap and walk out of your cap and talk to a Cubans, will make no distinction in what has been Trump and Biden anymore. I
0: have to say, that is really striking, that you're saying no difference between the no. policies of Donald no, Trump and no Joe difference. Biden.
4: No difference. Does
0: the Cuban government take no responsibility we do. for we do. the poor we condition do. of we the do. Cuban people right now?
4: We do take responsibility for our mistakes. We do such as such as having an agriculture that is not able to produce at the maximum capacity such as not having an economy that has been able to overcome the who system of sanctions on air.
0: How about providing greater human rights, political expression, freedom of the press?
4: I think that there's freedom of the press here to, the, to the, having so much interference and meddling from U.S. Do you know that U.S. finance probably 30, what you call independent press in Cuba, that are not in jail, and they finance on the payroll of the State Department. So when U.S., when you, you tell me that Cuba is the most repressive country in Latin America and it deserves the treatment that U.S. is giving us, I'm, I'm gonna have, I have to doubt of your ability to recognize what's going on everywhere, including in U.S.
0: You are clearly very passionate about Unfortunately, these Unfortunately, that's
4: why I'm going to quit uh, government <laughs> no, and I'm no. going to call, I'm going to start a beauty parlour. <laughs> you know, you know why yeah. I'm reacting like that? Yeah. Because I've been 30 years working for improvement of U.S. and Cuba right, policy. Well, let, let me... And mm-hmm. you will find less, not too many people that have devoted more hours in her life to look always at the positive side. I just, the U.S. government broke my heart last year when I was telling everyone here at MinRex, let's make a diplomatic nose to tell U.S. government to let Cuba to make an exception of sanctions and buy this and this produce. No answer. Those things hurt me at a personal level. I'm not poisoned, but I am hurt. What U.S. is doing to Cuba is genocide, is criminal, and it have killed people.
0: It was pretty apparent during our week-long stay in Cuba that the country is suffering, a visible difference from when I last visited the island in 2015. Walk down the streets of Havana and you see piles of rubble, shuttered storefronts, and abandoned buildings— The citizens we spoke to complained about shortages in ration cards. The peso on the black market is worth little more than four U.S. pennies. And Cubans are lining up every day outside the Panamanian embassy to get visas on that country's airline to fly to Nicaragua and then make their way north to the U.S. border, with over 177,000 arriving in this fiscal year alone, more than the 1980 Mariel boat lift. But there is a big gap between Tablada's account blaming all the country's problems on the United States and its claims about Havana syndrome, and how a sizable chunk of Cuban citizens see matters, as was painfully evident during a seismic event that rocked the island in the summer of 2021. On the morning of July 11th last year, thousands of Cubans, apparently inspired by a popular new Twitter message, hashtag SOSCuba, took to the streets throughout the island to protest economic conditions. Juan Manuel Moreno, an independent journalist and anti-regime activist, rushed to one site where the protesters had gathered, the Granma Memorial, housing the rickety cabin cruiser that Fidel Castro brought his band of 81 guerrillas back to the island from Mexico in 1956, launching the Cuban Revolution. Upon arrival at the memorial, Moreno was struck by what he saw. Hundreds of young Cubans shouting, Libre! freedom, young people with no memory of Castro's rise to power and the revolutionary idealism that once propelled him.
1: According
5: to what we see there, 90% of the protesters did not exceed 35 years of age. This means that there were two, three generations that were not committed to the so-called generation of the revolution. The young people, at least the ones that I work with closely, only asked for freedom. It was freedom, freedom, freedom. freedom. Simply for asking for freedom and asking for the cessation of the dictatorial scheme that were violently repressed.
0: Meeting with Moreno was no easy feat to pull off. Neither he nor I wanted to conduct the interview at the state-owned Nacional Hotel where we were staying. State surveillance there is assumed. So he took us to his home, sidestepping children and dogs scattered in a collective neighborhood courtyard, but first scouting the area to make sure there were no government agents lurking in the shadows. But when we sat down, he didn't hold back on the brutal events he witnessed as the regime's agents attacked the demonstrators.
5: de mi mente. Women bleeding on the ground, children bleeding on the ground, young people beaten up. The policemen violently attacked the demonstrators without any reason, following the orders of the political police who were there. Hitting with everything they had in their hands, sticks with the handles of the guns, shooting rubber bullets...
0: As the clashes turned increasingly violent, Cuba's president, Miguel Díaz-Canel, took to the airwaves and blamed the demonstrations on U.S.-funded agitators. He exhorted all true Cuban revolutionaries to resist this new threat to the country, ending with a chilling call to action. The combat order has been given, Canel said. Moreno was clearly taking a risk by talking to us. He and his wife, a fellow human rights activist, told me how they are constantly harassed by Cuban authorities. He's been arrested multiple times. On other occasions, they're ordered to stay inside their home for days at a time, a form of house arrest. Are you afraid of what the government might
4: do to you? Siempre.
5: Always. But the need to generate and give a future to my children and the new generation overcomes the fear.
0: Meeting with Moreno is a reminder that Cuba remains what it has pretty much always been since Castro seized power in 1959, a communist dictatorship that does not tolerate dissent. And like the reports of Havana syndrome, it complicated whatever plans Biden administration officials may have once had of improving relations. Cuban authorities rounded up and arrested 1,400 protesters that day, some 700 remained behind bars, and more than 500 have been convicted, some of serious crimes, receiving sentences of up to 30 years in jail. The Biden administration responded by imposing new sanctions on Cuban officials, targeting the chief of Cuba's interior ministry responsible for the crackdowns under a U.S. law, the Magnitsky Act, originally passed to target human rights abusers in Russia. Shortly after we left Cuba, the Biden administration announced that it was relaxing some of its harsh restrictions on the country, expanding flights to Havana and restarting a family reunification program, among other steps. But no sooner did it do so than the White House pointedly refused to invite Cuba, along with Nicaragua and Venezuela, to a summit of the Americas Conference in Los Angeles hosted by President Biden, even though the Cubans had been invited to such summits in the past. It was a stinging rebuke to the Cuban government and prompted a boycott of the summit by Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, as well as the leaders of Bolivia, Guatemala and Honduras.
1: Disappointed doesn't begin
0: to scratch the surface of how I feel about the Biden Cuba policy. Nobody is more dejected about the way things have played out than Ben Rhodes, the former Obama aide who had personally negotiated the reopening to that country.
1: I'm very passionate about it, and I'm passionate about it because my biggest regret is I let I led these people on, you know. The Cuban government made an agreement with me based on the idea that they could trust that we would keep our agreement. We deposited our agreements at the Vatican. Like I told the Pope, America would keep this agreement, right? So number one, I'm passionate because they broke my word. Like, and granted it was Trump, but then Biden, by Biden doing it, doubles down on the idea that like, why would any Cuban official ever, ever negotiate anything with America ever again after this? Like, if they can't trust a word we say. But more profoundly, Mike, I went down to Cuba a lot and met actual ordinary Cubans, not people in government. And they were so hopeful, you know, The ordinary Cubans just got screwed. We raised their expectations and then we slammed the door in their face. And then we had Trump in the most, you know, grotesque, callous way politicizing this. But then to have a Democratic administration legitimize what Trump did by continuing it, it's a gaslighting to those people in, in Cuba,
0: you know. I obviously wanted to get the Biden administration's take on all this, and it took a while. But after months of waiting, Brian Nichols, a veteran diplomat and now the Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, agreed to a Zoom interview. I started out by asking what the administration thinks is the reason for Cuba's current economic plight.
3: I think the first and foremost, a legacy of authoritarian control, economic mismanagement, a failure to take advantage of the moments that have been offered to them in the past. Until the Cuban regime decides to embrace democracy and free markets, I think it's going to be nigh on impossible for them to improve the situation there.
0: Why did the Biden administration not invite Cuba to the summit of the Americas in Los Angeles
3: This is a hemisphere that has committed itself to democracy uh, in multiple documents and declarations. So we have a framework in, in our hemisphere of saying that there are certain commitments that you must uphold to participate in the summit process. And everyone else has signed on to those.
0: Hasn't Cuba been invited in the past, at least on two occasions, I believe? Yes. So what's different now from when they were invited previously?
3: Well, the shortest answer is the United States is the host, and it's taking place in the United States. The host has wide latitude to determine whom they will invite. President Biden is staunchly committed to the defense of human rights around the world, And the actions of the Cuban regime to violently repress peaceful protesters a year ago also gave a clear signal that this was a government not interested in change, dialogue, reform in a serious way.
0: There was, to say the least, more than a little irony in Nichols' explanation. The interview took place the same week that President Biden was traveling to Saudi Arabia, where he fist-bumped Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto leader of a country every bit as repressive as the Cuban regime, not to mention the prince's direct role in the brutal assassination of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But then again, Saudi Arabia has gushes of oil. Cuba does not. As for Havana syndrome, I asked Nichols about the claims by Senator Menendez at that Senate hearing we played earlier, that the presumed attacks on U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers in Cuba couldn't have happened without the knowledge, if not the actual participation of the Cuban intelligence service.
3: So, with regard to anomalous health incidents, you know, those who have studied them have not identified any outside causality with regard to anomalous health incidents.
0: So you have no evidence that the Cuban government was in any way involved?
3: We have not identified any outside causality in any anomalous health incidents.
0: Why is this still called Havana syndrome?
3: I'm not saying it. You're saying it.
0: But Fair, would you agree that the phrase Havana syndrome is a misnomer?
3: Well, you know, I don't think that is... uh, Certainly, with the benefit of the knowledge that we have today, no, that's not an appropriate term.
0: Let's put a pin on those last several comments by Nichols. They're pretty significant, and we're going to come back to them later in this series. The breakdown in U.S. relations with Cuba leaves open the question we started with. What really did happen to Karen Coates and the other diplomats and intelligence officers who reported hearing those strange sounds in Havana? Coates' distress from the experience didn't go away. In the weeks and months after those cicadas or horny crickets were ringing in our ears, things only got worse and put our job at risk.
2: My boss is like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, because I am was just very discombobulated. I couldn't remember anything. I was having to write notes for everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm one that a, attention to detail is everything in human resources. And I was even to the part where, you know, I would have to write something and then go back and look at it again numerous times before, you know, I felt like I could understand it. And I, I couldn't really type on the computer. Uh, my eyes were very sensitive. I was nauseated. had headaches. So this was all, it was
0: pretty serious. Coates was medevaced out of Cuba first for treatment in Miami, and then to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where she spent seven months for evaluation and treatment. It helped up to a point. Was there a diagnosis about what the doctors thought you were suffering from?
2: Yeah, yep. Yeah. There was uh, many different diagnoses. Um, I had uh, a convergence insufficiency. I had saccadic um, eye movements. I had a divergent insufficiency. I had unspecified intracranial injury without loss of consciousness, which is a TBI. And they tell me I had mild TBI. I have cognitive communication deficit, which I'm sure you've noticed by now by how I have to talk. Um, I've had unspecified disorder, vestibular function, um, other visual disturbances.
0: What the doctors didn't know and couldn't answer is why.
2: No, no one, ha- no one knows what's causing it that they've, you know, said no one knows. Well, I mean, if my injury is like a con- me having a concussion without being hit in the head, if that's what you mean. But the, the thing that's causing it, no one knows.
0: In short, what happened to Karen Coates five years ago in Havana is a medical mystery. But in a sense, it's a continuation of a long-running Cold War mystery about the possible existence of secret Russian microwave or energy weapons, a concern that haunted U.S. officials for decades and prompted the Pentagon to launch some exotic research of its own. Next on Conspiracy Land In the height of the Cold War, U.S. officials make a startling discovery. The Soviets were eavesdropping on every conversation inside the U.S. ambassador's residence in Moscow, thanks to a microwave generated bug concealed inside the Great Seal of the United States.
3: Well, that particular seal had an unwelcome surprise, you know, the Trojan horse.
0: As more bugs are uncovered inside the U.S. Embassy itself, U.S. officials fear that the Soviets are bombarding American diplomats with microwaves, not just to eavesdrop, but to manipulate them, prompting the Pentagon to launch a highly classified project to develop its own microwave weapon.
2: In the 1960s, what happened was in response to the Soviet radiation of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, the Pentagon started a top secret project, initially called Project Pandora, that was looking at whether microwaves could affect the brain and could affect human behavior.
0: And a classic spy versus spy incident in Russia prompts a veteran U.S. intelligence officer to go public. So we went to sleep without doing anything else that night and um, the next morning,
1: I couldn't. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I had it was fatigue like I've never had before. Uh, I felt like a bowl of jelly.
0: That's next on Conspiracy Land: The Mystery of the Moscow Signal. Conspiracy Land is a podcast production of Yahoo News. A huge thanks to producer Mark Seaman, who accompanied me to Cuba, taped all the interviews, and then edited these episodes with his customary professionalism. Hat tips also to Yahoo! editor Will Ron, who offered editorial guidance, to Jack Forbes, who designed this season's Conspiracyland logo, and Yahoo! editor-in-chief Dan Kleidman, who oversaw the entire project.